Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Seamus Murphy. Today I'm at Corkton and Octor Tyre Upland Research Centre here uh, just outside Queen Larrick. I'm joined by Professor Davian McCracken and Dr. John Holland. Would you both like to introduce yourselves first? Davy? Yes, Davy McCracken. Um, I'm head of what we call the Helen Mountain Research Centre here at Kirkton and Octor Tyre Research and Demonstration Farms. And I have been head of the centre here for the last just over five years. John? I'm John Holland and I'm an Upland ecologist and I've been based here for nearly 25 years doing research on the biodiversity and the environment on the farm. And could you give us a bit of background then on the farm here? So the farms, we um, rent the site from Scottish Government. Uh, the site is 2,200 hectares in total, uh, and the research centre and farms have been here since the late 1960s. We were primarily established to look um, specifically at the sort of agricultural challenges to livestock farming in these sort of upland and mountainous environments, uh, and we still do that. But for the last 25 years, we have also been looking at sort of the environmental linkages between um, um, hill farming and upland land management and biodiversity and other environmental implications. So it's, a, it's an upland, upland mixed farming system, is it? Primarily sheep dominated. Uh, we got cattle back six years ago, so we have a small herd of, of cattle, but we have about 1,500 um, um, sheep of two main breeds, primarily Scottish blackface, but also Welsh clins. Uh, but we also have a small number of um, Black Welsh Mountains um, as well. And so what kind of work are you doing here from the Agri-Environmental Climate Change Scheme? So we've, we've done some practical work uh, which involves being within the Agri-Environment and Climate Scheme uh, and previously we've been in the other Agri-Environment Schemes so we've been in the Countryside Premium Scheme and the Rural Stewardship Scheme in the past and so over the last 25 years we've been, uh, much of that has been focused on the, the low ground until this last part of the, the EEC scheme where we, we're now quite a lot of emphasis on the, the hill ground uh, with a molar management scheme and with uh, cattle grazing during the summer on the hill. And what kind of stuff have you implemented then under those schemes? The primary focus on the, on, on the lowlands originally, historically, then that was um, focused in and around um, and the sides of the, the, the burn that runs through the, the, the lower part of the farms here. Uh, so fencing off water margins uh, to allow the sort of the, uh, the vegetation within those water margins to actually not be grazed so that it can actually grow up and flower and become more, more sort of floristically rich. Yeah, so the, these water margins, we've got about two kilometres of fenced water margin now. So nearly all, all water margins on the uh, in-by ground have been fenced off. And during the summer, uh, full of tall herb vegetation, things like meadowsweet and yeah. wild, uh, common valerian and uh, uh, wild angelica. We've got these water voles, these highland water voles, which are black rather than brown. And we, the, the water margins are also really important for other things. So we've got water shoes, otters, we've even got beavers now on the farm uh, using the, that uh, that area of the water margin. So you have seen a, a big increase in the biodiversity around the farm from, from putting in these uh, water margins? Oh, absolutely. Uh, on the low ground, it's a huge change, really, from when the animals had access to graze right up to the, to, to the, the small burn that uh, runs through the, the low ground. 
to, to now where you've got this really floristically rich area. I mean, it's, it's used regularly by barn owls, so we've got three barn owl nest boxes up, all of which are being used, and these water margins are really important for the, the, the barn owl. A key thing about the water margins is they don't need to be very wide in order to actually have that biodiversity sort of benefit. Um, so you don't need to take away an awful lot of your productive inbound ground in order to achieve that. So our original water margins, John, were only about two metres wide either side. Yeah. Um, more recently, uh, we have uh, uh, fenced off some larger areas, um, some wider margins. In the current EEC scheme, those were primarily areas that um, were quite wet and boggy anyway and weren't either used very much by the livestock or very important from an agricultural production point of view and for us. So we have sacrificed some parts of the farm, but a relatively small part of the inbound ground in order to actually uh, get such a huge biodiversity benefit. In more recent years, under the current scheme, again, more down in the lower part of the farm, um, we have created two areas uh, where we've got um, um, wetlands, or uh, created wetlands, or, or, or what they call in the, in, in the scheme, um, wader scrapes, shallow areas of water, uh, primarily to try and attract um, wading birds like um, oyster catcher, lapwing, curly, um, snipe, um, etc. Until we created those wader scrapes, there was actually no standing water anywhere on the farm. So again, the, the individual scrapes, each area, there's, 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 there's scrapes in two different parts of the, the low ground part of the farm and there are two or three shallow scrapes um, in each of those sort of locations. But actually in, uh, providing that um, amount of sort of stand, relatively small amount of actually standing water, again a bit like the water margins, has had a, a, has had a big difference. Now we haven't seen and nor are we expecting uh, an immediate increase in wading birds, but there's a whole host of other um, species, particularly things like dragonflies, etc., that yeah. do need some level of sort of standing water uh, uh, in order to actually um, maintain their sort of life cycles. And, and waterfowl as well um, have been using um, those scrapes. Unfortunately, uh, for, for, for things like for birds like black grouse or for wading birds like curlew or lapwing, it's a combination of changes in habitat and increased predator pressure that are the, that are the two main things driving mm -hmm. driving those um, declines so if if we are if we as a society in Scotland want to have more wading birds then um, predator control will have to be one part of the the, the, the suite of measures that we put in place uh, to actually create the conditions that's, that's, that's better for those birds yeah. um, and allowing them to actually get um, a greater number of uh, their chicks to actually survive through the, sort of, uh, the, the early stages of their life. And from the point of view of the, the uh, water margins and these wader scrapes, is there any management involved in, in them? The, the water margins, it's primarily uh, keeping um, and grazing animals um, out of them. Uh, the wader scrapes, we uh, are, are required to graze them lightly for John, it's... Uh, it's just really during the, the summer months, the late summer to sort of the end of summer, so it's, it's really only a very short period of grazing, but it, it opens up the vegetation around the areas and just stops it becoming from becoming sort of tall and, and, and yeah. rank vegetation where the waders can't actually then feed. Yeah. And I suppose uh, in relation to the wader scrapes in particular, uh, or wetland areas in, in particular, 
Uh, we do know there is a concern out there that if you actually start to create wetland on your farm, you might actually be increasing the risk to uh, your animal health in terms of sort of liver fluke. Uh, but we're fortunate here in that we've been working closely with colleagues in the Morden Research Institute who have been sampling the wader scrapes and areas around it since they were established, looking to uh, track uh, and see when the, the mud snails and or the actual liver flukes themselves start to actually appear within those scrapes. Interestingly, from our point of view, we weren't concerned that putting in wetlands would actually increase our risk of liver fluke because we know we're in a high-risk area anyway and we know in, throughout the in-by fields it's a high risk for the for the snails and, and for the fluke but we do appreciate that there are other um, um, farms whereby the the in-by fields might not be uh, as 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 fluky as ours are and what more done uh, uh, are doing with ourselves is just trying to establish what the risk factors might be are there any other negative implications of putting in the water scrapes or the, the water margins of course, with the water margins, it means that the livestock can't get to mm-hmm. the water, which means that you, you have to put in alternative uh, troughs for them. Uh, that is a potentially a problem in certain places, but uh, we've managed to overcome that. Yeah. So yeah. you can uh, get funding for, for, for that. Yeah. Yeah. And even though, how many frost days do we get a year down here in the south? 80. So 80 days of frost, but we haven't had any major issues with any of the, the water troughs that we've had to put in, um, freezing up or yeah. limiting water supplies to, to livestock during the sort of that, that period sort of thing. So the, the margins themselves will have a benefit of reducing diffuse pollution into the river as well. Yeah. Yeah. Although clearly on a, on a hill farm like us, even, even on our in-by ground, you know, the amount of fertiliser and or, and or dung that we're spreading is, is relatively low compared to what might be happening sort of more down in the sort of lowlands. It seems to be overwhelmingly positive uh, that the schemes you put in in the in the lower section of the farm. Yeah, I think so. I think I think just for just for, for the sake of sort of equality, the wader scrapes uh, do have to be lightly grazed during the summer. The vegetation clear to open up the vegetation, as John says. Nevertheless, the vegetation within those is not the most productive type of vegetation from an agricultural perspective. So you do have to think carefully about what animals you actually put in there and at some point there might become a, 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 a higher liver fluke risk so just to be, be, be wary of that. So. And of course then there's the other thing we've, we've done, we've put in a couple of shelter belts which of course has taken away some grazing land yeah. but you know we put them there because we can also see that they both have a biodiversity benefit but will have a benefit for the, for the livestock uh, once they start uh, growing. Have you seen any um natural regeneration in your water margins. Yeah, there's, a, there's certainly a bit of willow that yeah. uh, has come in, although we've actually done some minor small-scale planting with funding from the Loch Lomond and Trossex National Park, okay. a little bit of, uh, of, of planting along the, the water margins in small, small patches of willow and alder. Trees are very important for and water system sort of thing. It was a, an exceptional summer last year. It wasn't as sunny here as it, or as warm here as it might have been else, elsewhere, but nevertheless, a few trees or shrubs along a water course can actually help provide shade 
um, for um, 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 fish or, or, or uh, water invertebrates sort of thing. So a little bit of diversity um, along those um, water margins actually um, uh, uh, all adds to the, the value uh, that different types of biodiversity can gain from it. And then the shelter belts will provide that shade for the livestock and years time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things with our in-by ground it is very exposed and when it's windy, it can be very windy. Yeah. So these uh, are, are quite vital really, particularly at lambing time to have these shelters. The, the other thing that we've done down here in the low ground area is that uh, Loch Lomond and Trussex National Park have a small amount of funding uh, that's designed to actually um, help uh, put in some um, biodiversity actions that are not fundable by any other means, so they fall out with the sort of the, the, the scale of what might be available during an excellent. Uh, we have got um, a range of trees on the farm, and some of those individual trees are occurring within a field. They're not they're not outside a fence or the mm. other side of a fence, uh, and. The, the unfortunate side of that is if you've got a tree or a suite of trees in a field, then there's no chance of any of the, their seedlings starting to actually develop uh, because that's going to be grazed out at certain times of the year. And we don't want to then go fencing off all those areas, smaller areas of trees that would detract from the grazing. And so um, uh, two years ago, I think, we um, worked with the Bloodborne uh, Research National Park and um, did a little bit of funding that allowed us to plant, how many trees was it, about 90? Uh, in total, yes. Yeah. yes. So 90 individual trees are around the lower part of the farm. So some of them um, in, small, in, in small groups, like John said, in the, in, in the water margins. Others, um, single trees, but planted within uh, an open area, grazed area, where there was more mature trees. So there was a bit of a, like a succession planning for the, yeah. for the trees. Um, and, and even that, I mean, small-scale planting, uh, very relatively easy to do. We still had to have protection as you, to protect the trees from the sort of the, the, the grazing and, and, and browsing by livestock and by, by deer. From as simple as some single tree plantings through to some small scale um, shelter belts through to the larger scale plantings that there's a whole, it's, it's not one or the other, it's, there's a whole spectrum of different opportunities that tree compositions, different types of scales that really anybody I should be able to find some part of their farm that would be that would benefit from actually planting trees in, in some sort of shape or form. That's kind of the lower side of the farm, the lower land. So what 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 stuff have you done in the upper part of the farm? Back in nineteen ninety nine, we planted two hundred and fifty hectares of mountain woodland in one of our hill glens, and uh, this was a sort of uh, native species, so mainly birch and willow and alder, and a bit of Scotspine and a bit of ash and oak in the lower parts. The idea when we planted it was that we would create a silvo pastoral system, so that eventually when the trees were tall enough, we'd be able to allow the sheep back in to graze and get the benefit of the shelter of the trees and also get the benefit that the trees provide in terms of the improving the soil and improving the drainage. We've not actually quite got that far yet. The trees haven't done as well as we had hoped because of the altitude. Yeah. So they're planted at between 350 and 550 metres. It's our main block of woodland. And uh, in the environmental conditions we have here, trees struggle. And so we haven't as yet put the uh, animals back in. But what we have done is we've created a... Uh, a fantastic uh, 
mountain woodland and scrub area with lots of dwarf shrubs, so lots of heather and blaber. Really rich in wildlife, more bird species, more plants, more invertebrates, and a complete change to the landscape. Yeah. So we've gone from one which was, well, it was barren, uh, to one with much more structure, um, much more interest. And also <coughs> what we're doing um, and more recently with that area of the farm, although, as John said, we haven't been able to put the livestock back in, uh, we are tracking how the biodiversity is actually changing um, within that area. But also, and more recently in the last couple of years, we're also very interested in seeing, well, having planted that amount of, of woodland at that altitude, and what impact is that actually having on helping hold water back within that area um, and potentially help with um, mitigation of sort of flood risk and, and further down the, uh, the water course. So, so we're in the headwaters of the Tay here. Now, 200 hectares of, of, of woodland planted at high altitude on our farm is going to be a drop in the ocean in terms of holding water back. But if we, we're comparing and contrasting what's happening in that glen mm -hmm. uh, with the glen, Octotire Glen, the next door that is grazed as, as, as normal, just to try and get a, a, an indication as to how much water is being held back yeah. at peak rainfall during peak or during or at just after peak rainfall events. And that'll allow us to gain some, in, some idea uh, as to what scale of plantings might be required in a, in a catchment uh, like the tea uh, to have some uh, ultimate benefit to the sort of communities further down the, further down the water course. And have you had any issues with flooding on the farm itself? Yes, yes we have. Uh, so uh, the, the office buildings here have been underwater at uh, one stage uh, uh, and that followed a, a thunderstorm, so a very heavy rainfall event. I mean, the, the, the landscape around here can cope with two and a half metres of rain standard, but, but if you get these very intense downpours, that's when you get the, 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 the biggest problems. The flooding took out two road bridges? Yes, the two bridges down here and a footbridge higher up yeah. in the glen, and uh, it, it destroyed one of our uh, reseeded fields by washing quite a lot of soil and seed away. And the day after it had been uh, seeded, so it was not, not, not well planned. <laughs> so re reducing the amount of water coming off the hill then is very important for the farm here, as well as the, the catchment as a whole. Yes, yeah, and, and, and it's not so much reducing it, because um, it will come off at some point, it's actually trying to slow the flow, hold it back, um, and to some extent, uh, uh, you know, it's not managing it directly, but it's trying to actually put in a set of conditions that, that allows uh, the landscape to cope a bit more with, uh, not so much as John says, the regular rainfall, but some of these more extreme events. And so you're you're also doing some peat and restoration, which will help in that in that regard as well. Yeah, we've got oh, it's 200, 200, 200, 200, 200, 200, 200, 200, 200, Sorry, but we've and we've restored about eighty hectares. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. um, and some of that peatland um, has restored itself naturally because it's within the area that, that was planted with the mountain woodland, uh, and so simply um, ensuring that that area was ungrazed for the last twenty odd years by both livestock and and and, and red deer has allowed uh, those peat hags, those open areas of, 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 of dry peat to sort of revegetate uh, naturally. But um, 
three, starting three years ago, so three years, three winters ago and two winters ago, um, we worked very closely with Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park. Uh, we're just in the northwest end of the park. They helped us get some capital funding from um, Scottish Natural Heritage Peatland Action, and we focused that on not so easily accessible, but the, but the more easily accessible areas of degraded peatland on the farm. The first winter, we it was up about 500 metres, and then in the second winter we did another batch of, of restoration at, at, at about sort of 700 metres altitude along the same the same ridge line, um, and that was a combination of what they call reprofiling the peat hags, so the bare vertical faces of peat uh, 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 experts. Contractors come in with a digger and they, they sort of um, smooth down that vertical face and put the vegetation back on top of it to sort of cap the peat. And in the first year, we also had, uh, our, we're putting in a, a variety of different small-scale dams down some of these sort of gully coins, uh, just to sort of uh, hold back shallow areas of water regularly uh, with a view that over time the sphagnum moss will be able to recolonise those areas and, and start to build back up. Um, and so, I mean, again, it's a relatively small um, amount um, of peatland restoration that we've actually done on the farm. It's a relatively large proportion of the overall degraded peatlands that we've that are accessible, i.e., able to able to actually get to. But um, certainly, peatland restoration is a, a major focus for for Scottish government and both national parks and. Uh, I believe the Peatland Action um, funding has either just opened or is just about to open again um, for applications and would certainly encourage any um, land manager out there to, to consider engaging in that process. And there will be multiple benefits from the Peatland restoration. Uh, have you seen much in the way of uh, increased biodiversity? Uh, well, again, certainly things like dragonflies and uh, we, we still have a, a few pairs of uh, golden plover up on our Peatland, so we're benefiting. Uh, species like that, uh, and and hopefully we'll get curlew back. It's one of the species which, sadly, like many upland farms, we've lost in recent years. But by doing this sort of peatland restoration work and the wader scrape work, fingers crossed that we can get these species back. Well, the whole focus is there's a number of um, benefits uh, that Scottish government, Scottish natural heritage, and land managers are hoping to get from peatland restoration. Biodiversity has only been one part of it. Yes, we would hope we would then get more water being actually held in those actually peatlands. But if we can get more water held in those restored peatlands, then that, that would restore them as to like a more of a wetland ecosystem. So there'll be a wide variety of even smaller invertebrates that would be benefiting um, from that um, um, re-wetting of, of what was still, in certain times of the year, quite dry uh, areas of peat, um, despite the rainfall simply because it, it was exposed and, 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 and peat, as many people will know, does actually sort of uh, dry out quite quickly. One of the other benefits, I suppose, from the peatland and the planting that you're doing here uh, would be the carbon sequestration, and that's a hot topic at the moment. When you look at peatland, peatland and peatland restoration, when you look at planting trees, when you look at even having moorlands grazed by livestock or not grazed by livestock, uh, there is there's a big question out there at the minute as to how much does that actually contribute to sort of carbon sequestration mm -hmm. on hill farms like ourselves. I spoke at um, National Farming Union for Scotland's conference just a couple of weeks ago on sort of climate change and actions that could be taken by by farmers for that. And one of the questions that was coming back to me, or the issues that was that was coming back to me, was currently under most um, carbon sequestration sort of modelling processes, 
actually the, 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 the existing carbon sequestration that's happening out on these sort of hills is not taken into account uh, in the sort of the, the CO2 equivalent emission modelling. And, and, and that is something that certainly Scottish farmers feel very strongly about. My, my, my response at the conference and to a number of sort of follow-up conversations I've had is that is something that uh, we are certainly interested here in trying to get a better handle on what level of carbon sequestration is happening on various parts of the farm. But it's a big jump to go from there to markedly changing the climate change models because a lot of these models are built on international standards, not just a purely Scottish standard. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's what, that, that, that's where the sort of difficulty arises uh, this time last year. I was at a meeting, a biodiversity meeting in Kenya, but it was there was colleagues there uh, from elsewhere in the world who deal with what's called life cycle assessment, and it, been cl- it became clear that a lot of the modelling that they are doing to inform uh, these sort of carbon sequestration ca- calculations or emission and, and sequestration calculations, they're not really, they don't really incorporate these type of moorland and grasslands uh, as a, they don't recognise that as a, 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 as a, as a, as a habitat. Uh, to actually uh, take into account in, in, in their model. So there's a bigger issue about ensuring that internationally these, what we would call, sorry, what would be called rangelands across the world, their um, pros and cons are not really sort of um, recognised very much. A lot of the carbon modelling or, or CO2 emissions equivalent modelling is actually more focused on the more intensively managed type of um, agricultural habitats. And, and woodland and forestry habitats and don't then take into account that rangelands um, have a potentially a role to play. In terms of when we, we planted all this woodland up, up the hill, uh, one of the things that we noticed very quickly was how species respond to creating a new habitat. And one of the species that appeared on the farm, which I hadn't recorded before, was, was black grouse. And within Within five or six years, they were breeding within the, the woodland, and we've now got a small lek where the males display, uh, just outside the woodland area, which is fantastic to see. This is a species which is, has declined, yeah. and, uh, and but you can see that if you create habitat, the right sort of habitat, then, uh, then they will come. And, and again, a bit like the water margin um, issue of the weeder scrape, um, um, areas, you know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a small number of black grouse that we've got, you know, sort of probably less than a handful mm-hmm. uh, of, of of males, but you know, if if a greater number of farmers in this area were putting in that type of habitat, then it's the it's the, it's a, a little bit on one farm actually a little bit on a number of farms actually adds up to quite a lot um, yeah. overall. Yeah. I suppose also. Thinking particularly about the woodland side of things, unlike the water margins, you fence them off, and 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 to a large extent, the sort of the biodiversity benefits sort of come. Mm-hmm. The woodland, clearly, the woodland is fenced off, but there's still an awful lot of management has to actually be associated with that woodland mm-hmm. block. Uh, and I'm thinking here particularly, I'm talking here particularly about deer management. So, mm-hmm. so deer and grazing by deer, browsing by deer, is a is a, is, is a major issue. Uh, across all of the uplands and it's certainly a major issue and for us here um, in terms of ensuring that a relatively small number of deer could cause a, a, a large amount of 
uh, damage quite quickly into these young woodlands. So, so we have a very um, active deer management strategy yeah. uh, in place, uh, and that takes time, and it also costs money. So there is a cost to the business, uh, to the farms for actually doing that um, um, uh, deer management. But without it, we planted the trees twenty years ago. We started the deer management about fifteen years ago. If we hadn't started the deer management policy fifteen years ago, the trees wouldn't be there. Yeah. Wouldn't be there now. So. I mean, one of the habitats we haven't really spoken about, which is probably the the most important in terms of conservation value, uh, is the high altitude calcareous grasslands that we have on the farm. Okay. So within these species rich grasslands, we've got a number of nationally rare and nationally scarce species, and part of the the farm is a special area of conservation, and so one of the highest designated yeah. sites. And again, uh, that's for this. Uh, grazed species which rich grassland and many of the species that are in it require some level of grazing mm-hmm. so um, we we need to require we need to maintain a low to moderate level of grazing to to make sure that these habitats are kept in favorable condition but there's a bit of a balance here because we've got other areas where we've got species which require no grazing and it's a, it's a difficult balance so by creating the, the woodland a bit lower down we've provided an area where some of these species are able to to grow and flourish but also maintain this uh, this grazed grassland it requires a careful management it does and it requires a, a mix of different grazing levels mm. to to create the different habitats which suit the different plants and animals over the years we've, we've managed to create that. We've gone from a situation where the grazing level was, was fairly constant everywhere to one where we've now got no grazing, low levels of grazing, moderate levels of grazing, all of which suit different species. Mm. Other than the Kirkton Glen, where that, that's where the, the mountain woodland has been created, other than there, then um, I think anybody could come and walk across the rest of the farm and they would still recognise it as a active working farm. Roughly, I can't remember all the figures off the top of my head, but the number of sort of plant and bird species that we've we've, we've got on the farm. So. Yeah, so we've I've recorded over three hundred species of of plant, uh, this higher plant, uh, and for a upland area of Scotland, that's 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 a lot of lot of species yeah. and. Part of that is to do with the way that we manage the ground here, but it's also to do with the range of altitude. So we go from 180 metres above sea level at the farm level here, up to over 1,000 metres at the top of Ben Hallam. And most of the rocks here are a type of uh, metamorphic rock called uh, Dalradian mica schist. And, and this is uh, quite base rich in places. So we've got a range of pHs in the soil. So on our peatlands, it can be as low as 3.4. And then in some areas high on the mountains where you've got this rock exposed near the surface, the pH is around 7.2. And this range of pH means you, you, you can have a range of plant species, a much wider range of plant species than you would get on, say, mountains dominated by granite, which are you know, very acidic. You know, they would have a much lower plant biodiversity. Yeah. And, and how, do you, how do you balance being a productive 
farm for for grass for sheep with managing these uh, the species rich grasslands that you have here. It's, it's more a case of what we've introduced is a range of different grazing intensities mm-hmm. uh, across the farm. Now you could you could rewind the clock and go back twenty plus years, um, and the farm was um, much more productive in inverted commas if you actually took into account the number of sheep and other livestock that we actually had um, and the number of lambs, for example, that we were had available either to retain or, or to actually sell. So, it, so that was a very productive farm back then in terms of outputs. But actually the inputs back then were horrendously high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what, what, so we're, what, what we've been doing over the last 20 years is putting less of a focus on an output-driven only system and trying to actually see what are the balances, what are the trade-offs in terms of, from an economic point of view, you know, making sure that your inputs are not actually higher than your inputs. Yeah. Um, and, but also from a, from, a, from a wider environmental and, and, and biodiversity point of view, looking at seeing what those actual trade-offs um, actually were. We've got about 40 hectares of uh, improved grassland and, mm-hmm. and about 20 hectares uh, are, we could take silage from and we, we, we normally take about uh, uh, 10 to 15 hectares of, of silage each year. And for the last six years, the in-by grassland or the in-by fields uh, are, a, are an important part of a farm of this, this nature, the, the, the engine block of the, the whole system. And they're very important as a, as a grazing resource and as a fodder resource for silage uh, for the cattle during the winter. Um, but with, for the last six years we've also had a grassland improvement programme, so we have been looking to actually improve the, the, those grass fields. The vast majority of that 40 hectares that John's talking about is down on what historically would have been the floodplain of the river. We've got an, there's an embankment that was put in 50 or 60 years ago to stop it flooding. But nevertheless, you know, we are, uh, not every field, but we've got a reseeding programme in place, so we're either ploughing or we're minimum till um, in some of those fields each year. So, and as, as John explained earlier on, with uh, the flood event six years ago, uh, that field had been ploughed and ploughed and, and, and re-sown, so it was, it was open soil that was sort of sitting, the exposed soil that then was suddenly into the filling, which then gets into the tea. So... So having that gap between the, the fields and the watercourses can actually help in terms of reducing soil or, or, or fertiliser actually getting into the, getting into the, to the watercourses. What we found when we were doing some of the, the seeding work while we were ploughing the fields is that uh, even though we hadn't done any reseeding for, new, for 30 years, the, the fields were, were full of arable weeds and uh, the seed had been just hanging around in the soil for decades, just waiting for that one opportunity. And so uh, some of the fields were covered in a, a plant called uh, a large-flowered hemp nettle, which is big yellow flowers, and is fantastic for bumblebees and, uh, and, and other invertebrates. And so it, it, was, uh, it was quite a spectacle. And I could persuade the farm manager that uh, this is an annual, it'll just be there for that one year, you know, next year it'll have gone, so just if you just leave it alone. <laughs> and, and he did. And, uh, and then, you know, the next year it's gone. But, you know, the seed's back in the ground waiting for that next mm. opportunity. But this is uh, quite a number of these arable weeds are now rare in the uplands because people simply don't plough the ground anymore and, and don't do reseeding. And so uh, it's quite special just to see 
see them appear for that one year. We've also, uh, as part of the EAT scheme, we've got a, a small area of species-rich grassland that we've sown, uh, which is flower-rich, and you know, particularly for, for the invertebrates, because one of the problems with ryegrass, clover, and, and Yorkshire fog that's grazed most of the year, there just aren't any flowers. There's yeah. nothing for the invertebrates. So just having this, these little pockets with the water margins and then this area where we've, we've reseeded with this species-rich mix, it just gives that boost to the invertebrates. Yeah. Uh, rush control is, is one important aspect. It has a bracken control, uh, but uh, in terms of rushes, we've worked with the Soil Association and had a, one of the outdoor labs that they have, field work lab. field labs that they, they had here where we were looking at trying to control rushes through cutting and through the application of lime to try yeah. and raise the pH uh, and to cut regularly. Um, we've also done some control with a weed wiper, you know, standard practice. To be honest, we've had more success with that, but we're looking at different ways of trying to, to, to manage the, the, the rushes. In this sort of environment, we're never going to get rid of all the rushes, mm -hmm. and rushes are important for, for biodiversity in, in, in the right places and, and, and the right amount. You know, so it's, a, it's an effort to try and stop the, the rushes becoming dominant in areas. Yeah. Yeah. And you may think that um, uh, putting a focus on improving the productivity of Renby fields, which is important to maintain the sort of the economic viability of a farm like this, by liming might actually not necessarily then be beneficial from any sort of biodiversity point of view. Yeah. But actually, if you sort of think it through, then um, and there's lots of these wading birds like curlew, like lapwing, like oyster catcher that are in decline across Scotland as a whole. They feed on soil invertebrates. And many of the soil invertebrates they, that they feed on actually prefer, in these sort of in-by-field situations, prefer to be in higher pH soils, it's better for the actual invertebrates itself. So there's a, a body of thought starting to actually form that actually lining these type of in-by fields uh, in these upland areas might ultimately be beneficial as a, as a, as a food resource for, for, for birds into the future. And certainly it's not going to be the way we have to then manage those fields. Mm. Uh, it's not going to be beneficial from a floristically rich vegetation perspective that has to come through the remnants through the pockets that we establish through the margins or through the, the species rich grassland area but actually lining these fields getting the phs up it should increase the invertebrate activity within those um, um soils which should increase their potential attractiveness to to weeding birds like um, um well we certainly have oyster catcher on the farm um, um and they certainly utilize these these in by fields as a as a as a as a foraging resource for themselves and that that, that seemed a bit counterintuitive and I, I i was speaking about this at the highland show last year um and when i was explaining that that liming issue um, and potential benefit from from liming um, in these type of in-by fields to, to a farmer that was speaking to me at the show, he was gobsmacked. He, I, I could hear him just walking away going, get away, Yo, I never knew that. You know, so just, yeah. it's just trying to think that not everything that we do from a production perspective is by, necess by necessarily detrimental from yeah. a biodiversity side of things. It's, as we've talked all the way through, it's all about getting a question of balance, trying to balance what you're looking to get from an agricultural production point of view and what you need to do to do that and then how biodiversity can be 
can be fitted in as one of the, the outcomes from a, from a farm like this. And currently, and for the last 20 years, we have lost that grazing, livestock grazing resource in that 250 hectare of the, the mountain woodland. At some point into the future, you know, we will put livestock back in, not, not put livestock back into that woodland for a, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days of a year type scenario, but that, that woodland will become a useful grazing resource and particularly shelter resource uh, for us at some point into the future. So it's, it's, all, it's all about balancing, balancing things rather than just going purely from a, 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 an output side of things. Um, or at least making sure that the inputs re- reflect the actual inputs. If there's a farmer listening now in an upland system, uh, what would be a priority for um, farmers to start to look at that reflects the work that you have done here? From, from my perspective, any one farm would just need to, you know, even if it's similar to here, the, 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 there's likely to be different opportunities um, for those different farms um, and certainly different aspirations for those different farms as well. But if it, if it is a farm is like here in terms of um, we have a significant amount or had a significant amount of degraded peatland um, on that, then I would put that as a, as a, as a high priority and a, and a net relatively easy opportunity to actually grasp. Uh, the, the peatland action funds um, are available out there. Uh, there are um, individuals within SNH and elsewhere who are keen to work with um, land managers to actually help them get into the scheme uh, in order to actually get the capital funding that would allow uh, them to get contractors in to actually make those changes. That, to me, would be a a, a clear high priority Mm. to do it. As far as agri-environment is concerned, then one difficulty with that is just making sure you're doing enough to actually get sufficient points in order to actually stand a chance of actually being being selected and then and, and going forward. So that does require a, a careful thinking through uh, at, at the individual farm level what would be the range of things that's, that, that's possible there. I think it's all about integration and trying to have areas where you, which are productive, but also areas which you, know, you can give to, to nature in a way. So uh, certainly on the or in bygrounds, the water margins have been fantastic for biodiversity. But even things like putting up barn owl boxes, you know, yeah. it's uh, it's amazing that if you do that, you know, the, the birds will, will appear if you've got the habitat for them. So I think it's uh, it, it, it's that, it's putting bits of woodland in, putting shelter belt, but other bits of woodland as well. So getting that uh, mix of, uh, of, of landscape, uh, but, but also maintaining some productive land. And we were fortunate, probably not the right word, because it's, it was a management decision that was taken 20 years ago, but the fact that we have the, monta- the mountain woodland now led to the fact that we actually then had black grouse back on the farm, mm. which led to the fact that in our current uh, agri-environment and climate scheme programme, we were able to apply for a suite of upland, moorland-oriented management prescriptions. Um, um, predator control to, to, to benefit the black grouse but also specifically um, and we've got a, a moorland management plan grazing plan um, in place uh, uh, particularly um, related to not just to the, the, the cows but particularly um, applicable to the actual, actual cows uh, and unlike most other elements within the agri-environment and climate scheme whereby you just get a capital cost to create the weeder scrape or put up the fence and a small amount of maintenance money 
payments per year for doing that. Actually, the moorland management plan um, is, a, is, is worth a significant amount of money to a, a farm like this. Doesn't come without um, um, the need for management. We need to control predators. We need to actually have that grazing at the right in the right places at the right time of the year. But nevertheless, that's actually acting as a as a as an income source. Yeah. It is acting as a real income source to the farm to offset the the, the changes we had to make to the to the actual grazing regime. That agri looking at biodiversity management, agri environment management as one alternative income source is. All, what we're all about here is trying to actually highlight how hill farms can um, access a, a range of different income sources through the year to actually increase the resilience, or at least the economic resilience, of, of, of the actual farm. Mm -hmm. So it's, whether it's a climatic shock like the flooding we talked about, um, or a, a, an economic shock like any changes in agricultural support mechanisms going forward, we've got other income sources that might actually buffer against that. The whole idea of a more landscape approach across the states where different estates are doing similar sorts of things, creating bigger populations of, of these species. And one of the things quite locally uh, in uh, Glen Dockert that they've done there is a number of estate owners have, uh, have joined together within the wader project to try and increase the numbers of red shank, you and lapwing within Glen Dockett and that has been across a number of states and it's been sort of developed by the, the Loch Lomond and Trossex National Park and there are also examples within the, the National Park of these black grouse uh, areas where uh, adjoining estates have uh, got together and, and uh, the management has benefited the uh, black grouse populations. So people might look at uh, ourselves and say, well, actually, you've got 2,200 hectares. That's a big chunk of land. You, you, you could be able to actually achieve quite a lot from a biodiversity perspective from that. And possibly you could, but not uh, also ensuring that it was actually productive from, a, from a, a, an agricultural perspective. Mm -hmm. So even in these large farms, there's still a need, as John's highlighted, to actually have a more sort of integrated approach you know, some common outcomes in, in, in mind, complementary management happening uh, across these different um, um, land holdings. Uh, and, and that way, that's where you would get the, the uplift in terms of um, outcomes, benefits back uh, from a biodiversity and a, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a species perspective. Great. Thanks very much, John and Davy. For more information on the grants available, you can visit the Farm Advisory Service website and there'll be information there and the closing date for the Agri-Environment Climate Schemes in 2019 is Friday the 12th of April. Thanks very much for listening.